So we're going to talk through the, the scripture that we've already read a few times, and I've just got a couple of thoughts I want to say and point our attention to, and then we're going to have our time of, if you want to share what stood out to you when I read it, let's, let's talk about all that. But let, let me give you a little bit of stuff that stood out and maybe a piece of context we didn't know. But starting off in that passage right away, I think it's interesting how Jesus says, follow me, and then Matthew does. Right? Like, we, we don't have much else. We don't know how long afterwards he, he followed. Uh, we don't know if they knew each other previously. They may have. We don't know if, if Jesus, like, hung out within earshot of Matthew. We don't know if Matthew had gone to some of his sermons. We don't know any of that. But this invitation seems like it was responded to immediately. And it made me wonder right away, what was that like for you? And what was it like for me? You know, that first time where you really said, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. For some of us, it was a slow invasion like Howard Thurman talks about. Some of us had just been in church or in a setting for long enough that slowly it just became what we believed and we didn't really realize that it happened. That, that's oftentimes what I hear from somebody. Oh, I grew up in the church. I don't really have this conversion moment. I don't really have a memory of when I believed and when I didn't. It just oozed into my being. And then I, as I grew up, I started to make decisions and choices about what of it I believe, what I redefine, what I reimagine. And for others of us, it was a rather immediate thing. For me, I grew up in the church, but it was an immediate thing. When I was in seventh grade, I've told you before, I was at a Bible camp and Somebody prayed over me, and I'd been prayed over dozens of times before, but there's something different about this time. And, and young little Maddie believed that day and really has believed ever since. What I believed has kind of changed, and how I believed has kind of changed, but that's life, right? That's what is always becoming and changing and transforming and getting to know somebody. That's what it's like. Just like getting to know my, my mom over all these years has changed. I know my mom differently now than I knew her when I was that seventh grader. But for me, it was a rather instant thing. And I, I don't know that it matters whether it was a slow process or an instant process, but I do think it's worth remembering. I do think it's worth looking back and like, what was it about Jesus that was first appealing? Who was helpful in this journey? And passages like this make, make me think of that. Jesus said, follow me, and Matthew did. And as Matthew followed, it, it led him to this meal with Jesus, with Jesus' disciples, and then this group called Tax Collectors and Sinners, right? What a great title. And, and they, they're two different things to us, but in the culture of this first century, to the Pharisees, this was like a group. Tax collectors and sinners was a title that you would talk about. If we were first century Pharisees, this, this was one group. This was one them that we would talk about. We didn't want to associate with the tax collectors and sinners. You see, the first century Pharisees, if you're like me, you grew up here and they're the bad guys. You don't want to be like the bad guys. You want to be like the good guys. And, and yet, really... The Pharisees make some sense to me. They were a religious group that was committed to 
the laws, they believed the purity laws in particular. They, they thought if they just lived right, then God's kingdom would come faster. Any of you ever felt that? I remember when I first decided to follow Jesus, every single night I would, I would do what now I would probably call an examine, but I would look back on my whole day and I would try to confess every sins, which there was a lot. <laughs> But I was sure if I missed one and I died that night, I wouldn't go to heaven. And Jesus wouldn't love me. And all of these things. So I would just, with anxiety, I would sit in bed as little seventh grade Matt, combing my day for when I scowled at my brother or when I stole a baseball card from my friend. And then I would, one day I even went and gave it back in the middle of the night. I put it at his doorstep because I felt such guilt about I didn't even steal it. We traded, and I, got, I knew I got a better deal than he did on his card, and I didn't think the better deal was worth it, so I got to go to his house in the middle of the night because I might die tonight. And I thought that's the way the world worked. I thought that's the way Jesus worked, and God worked. Here, the way the Pharisees understood it is they can make God's kingdom come if they just behave. If we would just do the right things. And it's not just them. It's like everybody we need to all act right. If we'd act right, God would come and love us. And so to these people, tax collectors and sinners were a category. They were the others with a capital O. You know what I mean? Like the them or the others that you could just say that and people know what you're talking about. They were the people that if you were really following God's law, they believed that you would see them as them. The people who were doing it the wrong way. And sadly, we know these categories. We've been in spaces where there's thems. And we're taught to see them. Christians are kind of famous for this. We're really good at excluding grouping people together and saying they are this and we are this. Some thems get highlighted really heavy. In this time, some groups of them have started to become legislated and we start to make laws around them not just in the US but in in a lot of countries right now group people together and protect ourselves from them treat them different less human and then as we start to redefine things and our faith starts to change then the temptation is to make that first group who is theming other people be the new people that you them and we just kind of shift who we think is in and who we think is out. And it's all based on following where following Jesus has led us to a place where we are certain that we find Jesus among us. And we are at a place that's vastly different than the place that them are. The place where the others are. But these thems, the tax collectors and sinners, are the very people that Jesus is next to. If Matthew was going to follow Jesus, he was going to be among them. Now, ironically, Matthew was them. He was a tax collector. The them might have been his dear friends. Often this scene is seen to take place in Matthew's house. Like Matthew's like, hey, I've got this new friend, Jesus, who has his friends that he calls the disciples, and I've got these old friends who are already getting together for card night. Why don't we just have a bigger one? 
and they just have this big party of the people that he loves and the new people that he loves and they sit together and they eat this is good news for Matthew but I, it's easy for us in our culture to miss some of the significance here the significance that they're eating a meal together I've eaten a meal with a lot of people and I don't necessarily think of it sometimes you're like in a food court or in a airport or something and you're eating close to people that you don't even exchange names you're all just looking at your phone not really thinking about it but culturally there's real significance to who you would eat a meal with I want to read you a quick paragraph from Scott Barchi a New Testament scholar he says it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness towards anyone with whom one has shared, a meal, uh, shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. This guy said it fancy. What he's saying is they didn't eat meals for food. Meals were a way to say, I align myself with you. Where you go, I go. I'm committed to you. And we'll, we'll show this with the ceremony of a shared meal, of a table. It was a powerful way that if you were enemies, you would invite that person to a meal, and if they accepted that invitation, you were no longer enemies. Whatever that was that divided you was gone. You're now one. You're committed to each other. This is what table fellowship really was, and it's interesting now that so many of us are, are missing, like, we're feeling alone. We're missing having people that we really feel like are our people and then we go eat meals just to have good food and the good food is a real gift but the real point of this meal together was to have that commitment to one another to have this hey I, I'm with you and you're with me maybe if we drift back a little bit to the way that the first century did that I think maybe we'd find some healing and some wholeness but that's a little bit of a side you see Jesus is showing unity with this group He's offering loyalty that we've been speaking of over the last month. And as you imagine this story earlier, uh, just remember, wh where did you see everybody? If you were able to do that and kind of picture the scene, where was everyone? Where were the disciples and the Pharisees? Where were the tax collectors and sinners? Where was Jesus? Where were they all seated and gathered? Somehow the disciples seemed to be closest to the Pharisees who asked the question, like in proximity. It seems like they were standing by each other, or maybe the Pharisees knocked on the door and the, the disciples opened it, or, or more likely the Pharisees were sneaking through a window and the disciples were trying to sneak out the window because they were uncomfortable. That's more likely that there was something like that. Maybe, maybe a couple of the disciples needed to sneak outside to take a breath because they didn't understand what was happening. But the Pharisees asked the disciples, why Jesus was doing this. This is much more than why is the cool kid eating at that table at lunch. This is why is this person 
that you see as a religious leader sitting at a table and aligning himself with the very people that we have decided are them, that are the opposite of what God is. Why would Jesus sit there and how can you think Jesus is as good as you think he is if that's who he's aligning with? And Jesus overhears. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus hears this making of two camps. And he clearly declares which one he's going to be in. In one corner, we've got those who, who don't need a physician. We've got those who are righteous, who are getting by on their commitment to sacrifice. That's in one corner. And then in the other corner, we have those who are sick, those who are sinners, and those who live in the waters of mercy. Now pay attention here. This isn't just those who receive mercy. He's not saying, I'd love to give mercy. He's not saying, I desire to go give mercy. He's saying, I desire mercy. So what's going on here? Jesus says that we're told, or he tells us that we're to learn what this means. So let's do this for just a minute. This verse comes from Hosea 6.6, 6, right? It'd be worthwhile for us to spend some time in the minor, minor prophets together, but for today, I just want us to know that this is at a time where God is speaking through the prophet Hosea to God's people. And these are the people who love God one minute and then seem to forget about God the next. These are the people who are committed to God and then they find something better to do. And when they come back, they come back with big sacrifices, trying to make up for it all. Again, it's really easy to villainize people but I know that I've done this. Think of stories in your life. Think of relationships in your life. A time where a little kid messes up. And then they bring you their favorite dandelion trying to make up for it. Look, I picked this for you. I sacrificed for you. They do the extra chore to make up for this thing that they did to break relationship with you. A boyfriend is silly and immature and comes back with flowers and a commitment to, to meet four times this week and then breaks that again and comes back bigger the next week. The best friend ghosts you for a while and then returns trying to prove that they're still the best. And they bring you things that remind them of you, hoping to maybe appease you with some sacrifice. The dad leaves. Comes back with giant Christmas presents and promises. And leaves again. We know this in human relations, and this is maybe something we know spiritually as well. We haven't really thought about God very much for a week or two. And then we commit to two hours a day of reading the Bible. And every day I'm going to read for two hours, and I'm going to set the alarms, and I'm going to make it happen. And that way, by that sacrifice, I'm going to prove to God that I love God. We got to, forgot to pray for a decade. And so we sign up for a mission trip and we say that we're going to sponsor two kids at a Christian concert. And we're going to give money in a mission trip and we're going to change everything in one day to show the sacrifice. We haven't spent time on the relationship that we've heard that God wants, so we try to prove to God and ourselves that we can sacrifice enough to make up for it. 
feel in debt. That's when we try to pay it off. To God's people at the time of Hosea, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But this mercy is the word that we've looked at so many times before. In the last year, I think we've talked about this word like 12 times. It's that word kased. Loving kindness, long-suffering love, as Lois Turnberg writes. Now this class with the, the great Jim Buckner who, who wrote of this word, and, and we're going to figure out a way with a slow invasion or some, disciple, uh, some devotionals or something like that in the next month or so to, to get some of this more understanding of, of this word to us all. But just a couple things that this is. God's said is a revealed truth. We only know it by experiencing it. This mercy, this loving kindness, this long-suffering love that God has for us, we only know when we've tasted it. Otherwise, it, it makes no sense to us. It's a rescuing love. It's a hope in the times of trouble. And again, we don't know that theoretically. We only know it when we've experienced it. It's eternal. Unending. We can't exhaust it. Our, our tanks of energy and emotion can run out, but our tanks of receiving God's said, it's unending. It's the very basis of forgiveness. It's because God is attached to us that you... Yes, you're forgiven. Just stay there. Stay attached. Stay in this loving kindness. Jesus is among the others at this point, right? And he says to those who are asking, go and learn what this means. I desire an experienced, rescuing, unending love covered with mercy and forgiveness. Not some sacrifices at the altar and the offering plate. There is a condition to this, like I said. There is one way that we don't experience it. And that's when we don't follow Jesus to the table. He says really clearly, we've talked about it in the last couple weeks, we're to love God, we're to love one another. That's what obedience to everything looks like. That we learn to love. This is the root of our attachment, our union. It's what we've been talking about. Not hanging on for dear life, this isn't us white-knuckling our way through. It is us trusting, as a friend, and I, a friend of mine and I talked last week, that the branches of our lives bend towards goodness. That God will never leave us or forsake us. That God's love is eternal, even though everything else perishes and doesn't last. And for many of us, we've spent time as the others or fearing that we were the others, or trying to find our place at the table, any table. But my hope is that you realize that your seat is secure at the table that endures. That nobody can take that from me. And that experience is for us now, and tomorrow, and the next day. And that this attachment, this love, this commitment that goes both ways to Jesus, to us, and then actually returns where we're like, no, I'm with you too. 
that that's what lasts and that's what we get to focus on and that's what God's asking of us not really sacrifice but that we stay in that loving kindness that mercy that we trust that that endures now another name for communion or Lord's Supper is is the table right people say we invite you to the table and you're not physically getting up to a table but you're getting up to remember the table we're going to end this, this part of the worship service by receiving communion. By going to the table. And I, I want to invite you, if you're an imaginative type, type of person, to imagine the very table that Jesus was at with Matthew and his friends. And imagine the table that he was at on the night that they first received communion. They first celebrated the table in this way. We invite everyone to this table nearly every week. That's a reminder, a celebration of the chesed that we have in Jesus, that we're attached to him, and this attachment is secure, eternal, unending. So I invite you to raise your hand if you need these delicious wafers and, and juice.